0: Are you looking to buy, sell, or invest in real estate? Call Athens, Georgia's second favorite realtor, Jarrett Martin. Normal town, east side, and the outskirts of town, he covers it all and can help guide first-time and seasoned buyers alike. Casting a wide net with social media marketing, there's no one better to help sell your home for a top dollar. Give our friend Jarrett a call or text at 229-869-5734 or visit athensgeorgiahomes.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to Classic City Crime. I'm Cameron Jay, and I'm super excited to bring you another mini-sode about someone else right here in our area doing similar work telling the story of crime here in Georgia. Jacqueline Weldon-White is a former police officer and court administrator and the author of 11 books. Now, these range from true crime to biographies, and she is a two-time Georgia Author of the Year winner. So, I think her record on the subject speaks for itself, don't you? When a story by Athens and the Augusta Magazine brought the both of us together, I knew I had to sit down and interview Jacqueline about her experiences in true crime.
1: Uh, I'm Jacqueline White, and I live in Hushton, which is fairly close to Athens, about 30 miles, I guess. I have lived my life in Georgia. I was a police officer and then i went to work with uh, a juvenile court and was a court administrator until i retired in 2000 and my husband and i moved to macon that year to be close to his his parents who were in failing health and uh, i was familiar with macon because i had written already written a book about uh, Angieette lyles a woman who owned a restaurant there and poisoned people and my publisher is in Macon, and that's how I ended up writing this last book, is that uh, someone came to me and said, you really ought to write a book about this
0: story, and told me about it. And what a story it is. I do want to get there, too, um, Jackie. One thing I wanted to say is, we all consume true crime in some way, right? So it's sometimes it's through a podcast, sure. sometimes sure. people watch it on television, in the news, or unfortunately some of us have experienced uh, true crime cases in our own lives, but you write true crime books, um, which is really fascinating to me. Tell me how you got started in this genre. Was it because of your background? And tell me why it's so important to you.
1: Well, I I guess part of it was my background. After you spend six years as a police officer, you're at least familiar with what you find in research. Mm -hmm. You're familiar with how the reports are written. You're familiar with how investigations are conducted. And I hadn't planned on writing true crime, But I went to uh, lunch one day, I worked for juvenile court in Gwinnett County, and I went to lunch with one of our attorneys and a prosecutor who worked for the DA's office, Mm -hmm. and it had been a rotten week. And the three of us sat there and we were trying to figure out what we could do to stop working for Gwinnett County. (laughs) And uh, the prosecutor said, well, we could write a book. You know, we could write a murder a murder mystery like Agatha Christie and I said, You know, that's actually kinda hard. <laughs> you have to have a plot and descriptions and dialogue and-, and she said, Well, I'm from Macon. I always wanted to write a book about Anjette Lyles and as soon as she said the name I remembered the case because I as a child I ran through the living room one night and the news was on and they were talking about a woman who had been sentenced to death and that just didn't happen in the the Mm -hmm, fifties. And that's how I got started. I ended up writing it by myself. My friend, uh, the attorney just doesn't write. (laughs) And the prosecutor got a death penalty case the next week. Oh, wow. And said, I'm going to be out of commission for at least six months. Wow So I did it
0: And so how many books are you at now completed?
1: Uh, the last one was my 12th
0: We talked about just how many homicides have occurred here in Georgia How many there are that are unsolved here in Athens And I asked Jacqueline which one here in Georgia caught her attention the most
1: What always stuck with me is the husband and wife who were murdered at Lake Oconee
0: Yes, yes What a story that is.
1: What a story that is. And there hasn't been, I I know that the authorities are still working on it. You don't let something like that go, but there has been no solution. And I don't know if there ever will be.
0: And yes, we did talk about the case of our dear Tara Louise Baker, which by the way, let me tell you, the search is still very much active this December season with interviews being conducted just this week with three to four new people. And so Jacqueline and I talked about why so many of these cases, just like Tara's, have remained unsolved. And regardless of what we think about, you know, police misconduct or the lack of investigation, there is really a time period that's important. You've heard it before on television. First 48 hours really are crucial to solving a homicide, and Jacqueline and her law enforcement background agrees. Take a listen to this. You know, that's one of the most frustrating things. You know, I and the podcast have been working on the case of Tara Louise Baker, um, who was killed here in Athens 20 years ago. Um, oh, yeah. And and there are so many of these cases in Georgia that are unsolved at about the 20, 30 year mark. And your experience in writing and law enforcement, any idea why that is? Well,
1: most murder cases are solved within the first 24 to 48 hours. Mm-hmm. And most murders are committed by people who aren't thinking about covering their tracks. They're just uh, just instances of uh, overwhelming emotion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The murders that people put thought into don't leave behind all the clues all the mistakes that the others do, that the majority of murders do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why. I think, of course, I've always said that uh, if if criminals weren't stupid, the police wouldn't arrest them. (laughs) Not just in the area of murders, but in robberies and burglaries and things like that.
0: Yeah, and you know, that's That's interesting that you say that because I think Tara's mom sometimes even says, sometimes I think my daughter was murdered by a ghost just because there truly was nothing left behind. Whoever did this knew, either knew what they were doing because they had done it before or did put a lot of thought or afterthought into it. Um, I think
1: that has a lot to
0: do with it. So now the reason I brought Jacqueline on to classic city crime, talking about her books, beginning with finding out what her favorite is that she's written. Now, the answer did surprise me because she knew that I was expecting her to say one of the true crime novels, but that is not the case. It was not a true crime story, of twists and turns. No, not at all. Take a listen to this.
1: Well, I'll, I'm going to disappoint you because my favorite book to write was one that was called A Southern Woman's Book on Herbs. Mm-hmm. And I love growing herbs. I love using herbs. I love cooking with them, using them in uh medicinal ways. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by the uh, the stories that go along with them, that go back many, many generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, that was a book that I adored writing. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's done pretty well. The others, the, the books, the true crimes and the, the novels are uh, really just the things that I have to plan out. Mm-hmm. The book on herbs, I could pretty much do whatever I wanted. Mm-hmm. I could write about this, that's it, I've write about that. But if you're writing a true crime, you ha- I have to at least follow the timeline. Mm-hmm. It has to be done just logistically that way. And I, I guess it's not very exciting during the writing. And, and novels are the same way. Mm-hmm. You have to know what you're going to say and What's going to happen, and then just do it chronologically. I enjoy it. I love the editing process. When I finish writing, it. I adore the editing process because you work with your your publisher, and it's a uh, it's like a a joint venture. They'll send me the book after I've sent it to them. They will put it on uh, into their computers and. They'll go through, and everywhere they have a comment or a question, they will put that into the manuscript. Mm -hmm. And then I get it, and I read the manuscript, and I answer every question. I love doing that.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure.
1: Because you feel like you're really working together, and when you finish, you know that you have done
0: everything you can, and that they're satisfied with what they've done. Jacqueline Weldon White's most recent book is titled Pure Evil, The Machete Murders of Macon, Georgia. Not too far from here. I obtained a copy from the Mercer University Press to read and review, and I've got to tell you, this book is one you need to read if you like a story full of all kinds of ups and downs and some anxiety-inducing moments, because this story has all of that. I recently obtained a copy of Pure Evil, The Machete Murders of Macon, Georgia, and what a wild ride this book will put a listener on the storyline is quite fascinating and strange is a good word for it so can you tell listeners just a brief overview of what they can expect from this book and and then i want to discuss some other aspects of it
1: sure uh it follows a woman named becca akins well actually rebecca turpin first Mm -hmm. she she was born in, in athens and uh she married her high school sweetheart when they graduated from high school. They moved to Macon, and to an outsider, they would have probably seemed like a just a normal family. They had three girls, and I don't think people would have known would have realized what was going on in that household, but she was vicious to those children. Mm-hmm. If they did things that she didn't like, she would beat them. And she would beat them with the buckle end of a belt. And there were times that, I know this because one of them has become a very dear friend of mine, and I, this is where a lot of the information for the book came from, was from Valerie Akins. Yes. And there were times when Valerie couldn't go to school because she was bruised from the beatings. And Becky would tell Valerie's father, Ronnie Akins, well, uh, she's on restriction and you can't even see her. She's on that much of restriction mm-hmm. and he wouldn't even go in the girl's room. But it was, they had a very strange home life and she always wanted more and more and more. Mm-hmm. And poor Ronnie ended up working uh, two, sometimes three jobs trying to make sure that she had everything she wanted this was about the time that the uh, in the early, late 60s, early 70s, that the Godfather movies started coming out. Mm-hmm. And she was fascinated by the Godfather movies. And she decided that she wanted her life to be like like living in the mafia. Mm-hmm. And while they weren't making, they she redid their, uh, their den so there was deep carpet and and uh, two jukeboxes and a bar, because she wanted it to be like uh, Las Vegas. Wow. And things got kept getting worse with her husband. Uh, she finally tried to kill him.
0: That was shocking, yes.
1: And called the girls who were then like 15, 16, and maybe 13 to come and help her hold his legs down. She had drugged him while she tried to smother him. And they were, ter- they were so terrified of her because all their life they had been told, if you don't do what I tell you, I will kill you. And if you don't think I can, you're wrong. Or I'm going to take you and leave you in an orphanage and you'll never see your sisters again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they lived in constant fear of this woman. So she tried to kill him and it, he didn't die and he ended up in the hospital and he then he knew what was going on and he said well obviously i'm not going back to that house
0: and she even and, i believe now is this right she got him transferred to a psychiatric ward
1: yep while in this yep.
0: hospital stay
1: yes yes they came wow. and took him from the hospital and she went to the hospital and said he was uh a drug addict and was doing all sorts of. Uh, strange things and got him put into the psychiatric ward wow. wow! and he filed for divorce. His attorney would not believe him, mm-hmm. but he filed for divorce. And as soon as he did that, they put the house on the market. They sold the house. She took her share of the sale of the house and took the three girls and went to Florida. Because that's where mafia people go. Wow. And they lived in uh, Miami in hotels. And she left the girls in the hotel during the day. The girls just spent their time at the pool. And uh, she went to uh, racetracks. And at night she would go out clubbing. Mm. And she'd come home and tell the girls, I met somebody today. And you know what? He's in the mafia. Like, people who are in organized crime go around and announce that to people they just (laughs) need. Wow. But it was a bizarre existence. And then she finally met two guys, convinced them that they should become mafia hitmen, and these two geniuses said, Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And she ended up having them go back to Macon in order to kill her ex-husband, and she told the, the two guys that they were going back to uh, to kill him because you can't get into the mafia unless you kill somebody you could be connected to. Oh my! Like the mafia's got this list of checkoffs that you have to. Do you have think? To take. Do you think? But Rep- the reason she really wanted him killed is that he had uh, a life insurance policy as part of the divorce.
0: They would pay the girls. Mm -hmm. One question I wanted to ask you, do you really think that Rebecca Aikens' machete, um, do you really think that she had an end with the mafia or that this was just some story concocted in her head? no,
1: of course
0: not. So just to add what Jackie just said, the back cover copy of the book sets the story up like this. Rebecca and Ronald Aikens and their three daughters appear to be a typical suburban family in 1970 Macon, Georgia but the attractive facade hid a family crisis. The girls suffered physical and emotional abuse at the hands of their mother. Although he worked two, sometimes three jobs, Ronnie was never able to provide Becky with the money and lifestyle she wanted. After their 1974 divorce, Becky took the children to South Florida where she pursued a life of gambling and partying while her daughters were left to fend for themselves. But she wasn't content just living the high life in the tropical sun. Fueled by popular books and films, she wanted to live in what she believed was the exciting world of organized crime. So eager was she to do so that she changed her name and her daughters to Machete, a name she believed to be more appropriate for the Mafia. In only a few months, she found not one, but two men who joined her in her murderous fantasy, which culminated in two deaths. The resulting legal proceedings went on for more than a decade, and the Aikens' three daughters were right in the middle of it, torn between the fear of their mother and the desire to tell the truth. This is the story of Rebecca Machete, a cold-blooded woman whose prosecutor described her as pure evil, and her three daughters who lived through years of abuse before finally finding peace and normal in their lives. So there are several key aspects to this book that I wanted to personally ask Jackie about after reading it, so here's a bit of that exchange. One thing that I found most uh, fascinating in the book, and you touched on it, is, you know, her daughters in this case that really just went through hell and years of abuse and um, trauma. And um, they really held on to their mother's story even after their mother was in jail.
1: Tell us about that. She arranged... She arranged to have... She told them, if you say anything, I will have you killed. Mm-hmm. And I've already had your father killed, and they knew it. Mm-hmm. But she uh, arranged to have her daughters go live with her mother. In Athens. In Athens. Mm-hmm. So there was no break from from their contact with Becky. Mm-hmm. She had them... The mother had them write letters. I think... Every other day, I I may be wrong about that. And she took them to Macon to visit her in jail. So there was no real, they weren't really removed from Becky. Mm -hmm. Now, after the second trial, after the first trial, excuse me, and she won a second trial, and there was maneuvering, and they went to live with her father's family, and they testified against her in the second trial.
0: That's right, yeah.
1: And testified truthfully.
0: Mm-hmm. Must have been a very brave thing for them to do after all those years. I could not imagine.
1: Well, if you think about it, you know, if you've ever heard of Stockholm Syndrome, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. exactly exactly what it was.
0: Now, once you obtain your own copy of the book, you'll come to know of a man named John Murray, who really got caught up in the twisted world of Rebecca, I would say, and her plot to kill her husband. Um, I'm interested to see what some of you think about his character and punishment after you get to read a copy, but here's what Jacqueline says about his um, role in all of this. You know, the two men that you mentioned that Becky was able to convince to kill her ex-husband and his wife here in Macon... One of them became her husband, and the other befriended her daughter, and actually seemed to be, you know, to the reader, maybe a little less nefarious than Becky and her husband themselves. What did you think of Mr. Marais? How did you feel about his character as you developed this story?
1: I think he was weak, Mm -hmm. but I think he also was just kind of along for the ride, because they partied every night, and they had a good time Mm -hmm. and she taught she and and the man she eventually married who she had changed his name to tony machete because that sounded like a hitman (laughs) uh she and and tony would talk about him being a hitman but john just kind of hung around Mm -hmm. and enjoyed the the partying and the drinking and going to the racetrack and even when they went to Macon, I'm not sure he really believed they were going to do it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: When he and Tony drove to Macon, I'm not sure he was ever convinced until the minute it happened that it was going to happen. Because I think for him, it was almost a a fantasy, just a, a game they were playing.
0: Sure, sure. Well, a game that took the lives of two people and ruined an entire family Um, Absolutely. Let me ask you this, Jackie. Fact-checking these old cases are not easy. Um, That is one thing that I have learned, especially when you have uh, 20-plus years of, you know, victims that have endured tons of grief and trauma and, um, you know, memories that can be a little off. How do you go about conducting your research? And, uh, you know, what unique challenges did you face in writing this book?
1: The way I I usually do it... uh... I will say that on uh, the book called The Empty Nursery, that was somewhat different because I knew the people involved. Uh, that was with the Gwinnett County Police Department. I knew them. So I didn't, and it wasn't as far as uh, far in the past. But with this one, with Pure Evil and with uh, Whisper to the Black Candle, the first thing I did was go to the library and mm-hmm. make copies of every single... Uh, newspaper story
0: about that case. Microfilm is not fun to me. <laughs> I don't like it. I hate it.
1: But then I would end up with a stack, a good 8, 10 inches high. Mm-hmm. And then I would go through and find the name, You know, obviously to find out what happened Sure. and get the, the, the storyline. But also to get the name of every person that was ever mentioned. Then I would find those people. And I, in Macon, for example, everybody still lived where they had before.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not quite like it would be up this way. But Macon's a, a small town and people don't tend to move away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I would get their phone numbers and call. Them. And ask if they would talk with me. and surprisingly, most people would talk.
0: Yes, I've said the same thing, that surprisingly, most people, if you give them a chance to tell their truth, they're going to, will talk to you about it. Now, I've had a few (laughs) hang-ups.
1: There was one uh, one guy who was a a police officer, and he wanted to write the book that I was writing. Mm. And he said, you'll understand that I just, I can't tell. I said, of course, I understand that. As far as I know, he did not write the book. Mm-hmm. But uh, most people will talk to you, and then I would take copious notes when I talked with these people, because I would tell you other things about other people. Mm-hmm. And so you just follow that; you just follow the line. But on the professional side, I would go to uh, I go to Superior Court. That's right where they have all the records of, and with the uh, Freedom of Information Act, you can, can, and I did request the district attorney's file, mm-hmm. which they copied and sent to me. You have to pay for the copies, of course. Sure. Uh, and the same with the, uh, the file in the uh, clerk of court's office, the superior court file. I also, which cost a fortune, paid for transcripts of the court, of Mm -hmm. the the trial. And that will run you up to, because this had two trials, over $1,000 on that.
0: I don't think people understand how deep and um, costly some of these requests in trying to find the truth can be. (laughs) Yeah,
1: they'll give them to you. You have a... The public has a right to the, to that, but the county also has a right to not to not spend their money to make a copy of you know seven hundred pages of a, a trial transcript.
0: Exactly, exactly.
1: So it just and then you just I just sit down with the the transcript and you find out a lot of things in the uh, the trial that don't make it into the newspapers, obviously. So you read all of the transcript, and if you're lucky, you can find some of the, uh, the police officers. And I did, I was very fortunate in finding, uh, some of the people that worked the case.
0: Yes, that's amazing.
1: And then you just sit down with all that information. And put it in chronological order and write it
0: up. One thing that I saw is that, you know, you say you became really close friends with Valerie, um, daughter of Rebecca Aiken's machete. Um, And she called you recently to tell you that her mother had died. Is that right?
1: Well, we talk at least once a week. Mm -hmm. She lives in Florida. And... The reason she knew that, she, her mother had been in a nursing home. She lived in Athens
0: mm-hmm.
1: on Camelot Drive.
0: Yes, she did get out of prison, correct, and lived in Athens. Yes, she did in, mm-hmm.
1: in 2010. And her, her medical condition worsened over the years. And so she eventually was put into a nursing home. And the nursing home was it was done through the courts in, in uh, Clark County, but the nursing home was in, uh, Franklin County. Mm -hmm. And Valerie, they involved Valerie in that, although Valerie said, no, I will not be her guardian. I do not want anything to do with the woman who murdered my father. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they would call Valerie from time to time. And, uh, Valerie said all I want to know is I would like to know when she dies (laughs) I would like to know when it's over Mm -hmm. and so uh, the book came out in late August and sometime a week or two after that I did an interview with uh, a reporter from the Macon Telegraph Mm -hmm. and I was on a I can't remember what day it was but he he called me on Tuesday and said it'll be out tomorrow Mm -hmm. okay so and he was going to send me a a or send me an online online copy of Mm -hmm. the article but the next morning at 8.30 the phone rang and it was Valerie and she said Becky died at 3 o'clock this morning of COVID oh wow so I called the reporter back I felt kind of bad for him because it was already out in the that edition of the telegraph and i said i'm sorry to tell you this wow she just died so he he at least could do a a follow-up the next day
0: i want to thank jacqueline again for taking time to talk with us about her latest book and her work she truly is an inspiration to me i'm so glad that fate and a one-time news interview would bring us together but I'm always willing to provide a space here for any creative in storytelling and true crime to tell their stories, their victim stories, and to share their stories and work with the world. We are all in this fight for justice together, even when we don't always agree on everything. For more information on Jacqueline and her true crime stories, novels, and biographies, please visit JacquelineWeldonWhite.com. I'm going to link that in the podcast description where it can be easier to access. And be on the lookout for a giveaway of my copy of Pure Evil, The Machete Murders of Macon, Georgia, this week on our social media. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Cameron J. Classic City Crime is hosted by me, Cameron Jay, co-produced and designed by Kyle Gazaya. Visit us online at ClassicCityCrime.com. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We look forward to seeing you right back here every
1: Thursday and be on the lookout soon for updates on the Tara Baker story.